NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hi, Allison. It's the October Mailbag, and this week we're going to answer your investing-related questions with the help of Buck Hartzell. Most of the questions today have to do with portfolio allocation, I noticed. <laughs> so, if those two words get you excited, boy, have we got a show for you. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Hey, Buck, thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Allison and Robert. Thank you for having me back again. Always a pleasure. I also want to thank Austin, who is uh, behind the glass today, stepping in for Rick. Um, Thanks, Austin, for filling in at the last minute. Rick learned that he is allergic to oysters. What? Is that why he's home? Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. That so he's yeah oyster related illness. Home, Rick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, future Rick, when you're listening to this, I hope you're feeling better. All right. So should we just go in and get into the questions? Let's do it. Let's do it. First question is from Alexander. I'm 27 years old and hoping to retire somewhere between 65 and 67. How can I decide the right mix between large, mid, and small cap equities? From what I see on the web, small caps have performed the best since I have many years till retirement. It seems to me that I can afford to take the risk and have more of my money in small caps. Yet, advisors and the resources I found online shy away from having a large percentage in small cap companies. Also, my mother-in-law is about 11 years from being 67 and retiring. What's a smart mix for her? Well, Alexandra, let's start with the outperformance of small cap stocks. And those numbers often come from Ibbotson, which has numbers from 1926 to 2017. Over that period, small cap stocks returned about 12.1% compared to large cap stocks, which are 10.2%. So about a two percentage point difference. Um, the studies that sort of found these, though, even though those numbers go back to the 1920s, wasn't really until the 1970s that people began to sort of pick up on this. So then small cap investing became popular. And then from like the early 1980s to the late 1990s, small caps significantly underperformed large cap stocks. In fact, some people like Jeremy Siegel think that really there is no outperformance of small cap stocks. It's due to a couple of periods of like the 1970s when small caps did particularly well. Not everyone agrees with that. If you look over the last like 15 years, small caps have outperformed, but over the last five years, large caps have outperformed. The main point is that we don't really know what the future will look like. For someone like you, I actually think it just makes sense to have an equal allocation to large, mid-caps, and small-caps, because we don't know what the future is going to look like. One issue is that the smaller you get, the more volatile the stocks do become. But since you're young, that's okay. You're talking about, I think you said it was your mother-in-law. For someone like your mother-in-law, I think it makes more sense to lean towards large-cap stocks. They're less volatile, but they also tend to have uh, more of those companies are more likely to be paying dividends, which I think makes sense. Dividend-paying stocks generally tend to be less volatile, but also once you're in retirement, it's nice to get that income. Yeah, and I would just say for anybody looking at small caps, and I don't know if we define that all the time for folks, but generally you look at stocks under two billion market cap, and then things above ten billion are generally large cap, uh, large cap stocks. Yeah, and and he is right in that when you look at, for example, the typical target retirement fund. So Morningstar does this report where they examine 
all the Tiger Retirement Funds, the recent one, they looked at 49 series of funds. And they do find that, generally speaking, those funds have about two-thirds of their allocation to large caps and only one-third to mid and small caps. And I have to say, I don't know exactly why they do that. Um, I think it makes more sense to have a more evenly distributed portfolio allocation across all of those sizes. Yeah. Okay, so you're suggesting that... Did you did you offer up any percentages or no? You just said so lean I, in. Equal, so, equal. So I, I mean, I think but you you're could not, go. But you're not. What about bonds though? Because you're not. Right. We'll talk about bonds later. Okay. Well, we have later sorry. So just yeah. just looking at everyone. Stocks. Stay tuned. Stay We're going to talk about bonds later. Yeah. But if you're looking at just the equities slice of your portfolio, I think you can 30, go third 30, small. 30. Yeah, third small, third mid, third large. All right. Next question comes from Jim. Now that Apple is a trillion-dollar corporation, I started digging into how much of it I actually own. When I first started with The Motley Fool, I began building out my Roth IRA and Stock Advisor picks, which included Apple as one of my first starter stocks. But it's also the top holding in the index fund in my 401k, and it's also in a couple of other mutual funds I own. Should I sell my small position in Apple that lives in my Roth to be able to reinvest those funds into another stock that has greater potential to grow? How many apples is too many apples? Yeah, good good question, Jim. And first of all, congratulations for actually looking. A lot of people that own mutual funds don't understand the concentrations of the funds, and there's overlapping kind of concentrations that can build up. Apple's an obvious one if you own ETFs or mutual funds because they're in just about everything because they're so big and so liquid. So I looked up yesterday. Um, Vanguard, if you look at the F- if you own the S and P 500, about 4.19 percent of that mutual fund is in Apple. Wow. And then of course, if you own it in your own uh, portfolios or individual stock as well, you can easily get a big percentage that you didn't really know about. So, uh, so good for checking. If you haven't checked, uh, Morningstar has a cute little tool. It's called Instant X-Ray or Portfolio X-Ray. So just Google Morningstar and X-Ray tool, and you can kind of find out. You can put in your mutual funds, and you can um, put in your individual stocks, and then you can see the overlapping percentages of everything. Um, so whether you should sell it or not, the nice thing is you have this individual position in a Roth, so you don't have any tax consequences for selling it or not. Um, I'd say that's a, an individual decision based on on what percent you have in there. You didn't tell us that, Jim, but I'd say generally around ten percent seems to be on the that gets around the high side where you might get a little bit uncomfortable having that much allocated to it. And as you said, there's no consequences to selling it, so that's fine. Generally, we tell people though, if you like the company and how well they're performing, don't sell just for the sake of selling. But that ten percent is a rough area where you might get uncomfortable. All right, next question comes from Michael. I've read some convincing arguments recently, including on Fool.com, that have suggested that the flood of investors' money going into passively managed funds has the potential to create an index bubble. This money is being unevenly distributed to the top-performing large-cap stocks. Oh, hey there, Apple. Mm-hmm. Uh, if those few companies were to falter, it would cause a cascading effect downstream to smaller companies. Do you see any truth in this assessment? It's a really interesting question. I mean, when you say the term index bubble, that has different meanings for different people. Mm. Some might think that what they're really what people are arguing is that indexing has done so well and become so popular that it won't do as well in the future, and that in the future actively managed funds will have an easier time of it. I'm not sure if I agree with that or not. The the long term history just shows it's very tough to beat an index fund. That said, what I think is more important, and it's kind of more related to the the previous question, is the more your portfolio is allocated to like an S&P 500 index fund, the more you are concentrating your portfolio in a handful of stocks. And particularly at this time, right now, the S&P 500 
uh, is more than 20% of it is in technology stocks. So the number one holding is Apple. Number two is Microsoft. Um, you look at things like Google is in the top 10. You're, you have a pretty big concentration in one sector. So I think it makes more sense just to look at indexing as you're in your index funds as part of your whole portfolio rather than just getting away from index funds just because they're index funds. But now I know Buck has an opinion about this too because we sit next to each other and we talk about index funds all the time, partially because we're both on the 401k committee and yes, the, the total stock market index fund is the biggest holding in our 401k. Yeah, 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 that's right. And we used to have the S&P 500. We switched over to total stock market index uh, just because that does have exposure to smaller and mid-cap companies. So somebody that wants a diverse exposure to the stock market, they should get all ranges. So that's that's why we did that. But yeah, I think that's a great question. And I would say in addition to the indexing there's something that we talk quite a bit around here about is closet indexing. There are those professional money managers who um, are scared to deviate much from the performance of the index. So, although they charge higher fees than what you get from an index fund, they tend to have a, a, a large overlap in the holdings of those index funds. So, I think there's there's probably even more support for some of that momentum around those stocks. And one of the things that we get a little worried about uh, around here, I think, sometimes is that there's you know largely a handful of stocks that are driving the performance of that index. And when you get too concentrated, this happened in the late. 90s, when you had companies like GE was one of those, and some of the large cap Home Depot, I think, was one of them. Lucent was a big driver, and some Cisco. of these companies, when yeah, when they and Cisco was a, over a 500 billion dollar company, when they make up a big proportion of this whole index, you get a little worried if something happens and they're all in that same sector. So yeah. that gets back to your sector comment too, bro. So we worry not just about the index, but some of those people, and there's a lot of them. Because they've underperformed, and they saw, you know, finally they give in and go, I can't underperform anymore, so I'm just going to kind of add some of these stocks. So there's a big follow-on ripple effect from that indexing that's been going on. Yeah. Next question comes from Ronald, uh, and he writes, "How and who established the traditional metrics that we use for valuation, and why has that changed over time?" Why are different industries and businesses being evaluated with different valuation metrics versus another of traditional metrics? For example, 20 times forward earnings being cheap versus expensive for different businesses and industries. Yeah. So, Ronald, that's a, that's a little question, and it's pretty concise. The big ans- answer? The answer is a, is a big one. <laughs> yeah. So, settle so, in, everybody. Yeah. Go. So, and this one, uh, yeah, maybe if you guys, I see, I don't get in trouble. I'm just a guest here. So, if you guys don't like the depth that we're going into in this answer, then <laughs> you can tell them comfy. and they won't have me back again, which yeah. is fine. But the, the short answer is some industries are inherently better than others. So, that's the quick answer. Um, cereals, for instance, they all earn, you know, cereal companies have earned 15% return on equity for a long period of time and they have competing products and that's just been a really good industry. There's other industries like airlines, typically, though. They've done better recently. That nobody earns great returns, with the exception of maybe Southwest or one or two airlines. So, um, anyhow, so some industries are are particularly good, and some are particularly bad generally. Now, the longer answer on kind of multiples and that kind of thing and valuation of stocks, and this is a more complex thought, but I think it's kind of important and it's pretty timely, is understanding the relationship between inflation rates and interest rates and bond prices and stock prices, right? And so we're kind of going to go we'll take a little little dive into that and hopefully it's it's useful to you. So interest rates um, are driven a lot by inflation. So inflation rate and I looked this up yesterday is running about 2.3%. It's pretty low and it's been modest here for quite some time. So that's the inflation rate and what happens when banks when they set interest rates for different loans and different things like that, 
they're going to have to charge above the inflation rate or they lose money, right? So, and typically, banks will charge about 3% premium to whatever inflation is. So, if you see inflation is 2.3, you can expect that loans and stuff like that will be at about 5% or so. And that interest rate, in turn, influences bond rates, right? So, I looked at bond rates, and we're at a weird time here, so we'll get this back this later. I looked at T-bills. So, 10-year T-bills are at about 3.14% right now. Um, so, on a $1,000 bond, you would be getting $31 a year in interest. Uh, and that's, so, it's a 10-year. If you look at 30 years, uh, you only get 3.4%. So, there's not a huge premium for that extra 20 years, uh, which is a little bit weird. We won't talk about the yield curve here. But anyhow, so those are, those are bond rates. They're not spectacular, and they're not a, certainly a way to get rich right now um, at 3% what you're earning for T-bills. And then we look at stocks and multiples. Right now, the S&P 500 is trading just below 18 times earnings, um, if you look at the S&P 500. And now, we compare those. Here's why it's important between stocks and bonds. Bonds are a replacement uh, for stocks. They compete for money, right? And so, if you can get 6.5% guaranteed out of a bond, uh, you assume more risk when you buy stock, right? Because if something goes bad, Sears shareholders uh, out there, <laughs> um, there's nothing left for the equity holders, but the bondholders precede them, so they kind of get they get preferential treatment. So, if if you're going to take that risk for being an equity holder, you want to earn more than the bond. So as bond rates go up, then equities become less less attractive. So anyhow, at 18 times earnings, when we look at the S&P 500 multiple, to compare those two, we kind of need to convert it to an earnings yield. So, that's just the inverse. So, if you have a P.E. of 10, so 1 divided by 10 would be a 10% earnings yield. We have 17.98, which turns out to be a 5% earnings yield on the S&P 500. Now, here's the interesting thing. The, if you buy a bond, it doesn't change, right? Like you can, you buy that, you're going to get that coupon. That's what you get until it matures right. and goes to the that's, end. That's why they call it fixed income because it's right. fixed. It's fixed. You get yeah. no growth. But when you invest in stocks, earnings generally grow. On average, they grow about seven percent a year if you look back historically. So what happens is uh, investors typically will take a little bit less on the earnings yield for stocks than they will in comparison to bonds. Now, here's the weird thing today, which we're kind of getting at why it's uh, important. Um, so, we have the 5.6% earnings yield for the S&P 500, and we have 3% in bonds. That's weird. Usually, it would be a discount, and the discount would be if, it, if you took the rate for stocks and grew it at 7% a year, usually it's about a three-year three, three year period there. So, we would expect that stocks would be cheaper. Unfortunately, they're not. You're getting more for stocks. So, what does this tell us, that 5.6% tells us we should be kind of leery of investing a whole lot of money right now in bonds. And some people, Warren Buffett and others, have talked about the big bond bubble and all that kind of stuff. So, as a result, I would be pretty skeptical of putting a whole lot of money in bonds today. And most of the people that have to put it in, like insurers and those kind of companies, are in very short yielding. So, they're in short duration bonds. They're not going to go out there and buy that 30 year for, you know, 3.4% versus, you know, a 10 year for 3.1. And they're probably even much shorter maturity than that. So, in summary, here's what we know. Uh, inflation 
impacts interest rates. Interest rates, interest rates impact bond rates, and bond prices impact with stocks. So what happens when interest rates rise, and what we're seeing with the Fed right now is they're raising rates. And there's some signs that wages are growing and things like that that are kind of traditional um, inflationary signs. So we'd expect them to keep raising. Um, and what happens then is uh, bonds actually become – the pr- current prices of bonds go down when rates go up. Because if you bought a bond a day ago at a 3% and now it's 4%, well, the current bond that you have, the old bond, has to be repriced to be comparable to that 4%, so the price of it goes down. Now, if you hold it to maturity, that doesn't matter, right? You're going to get your payments and all that kind of stuff, and that's why Bro tells people to ladder into bonds and that kind of stuff. Stocks as well, when interest rates rise, the multiples generally go down. But when we look out across right now, and this is why it gets scary and I'll wind up now for you guys, is you know, people go, stocks look expensive to me from a historical standpoint. Well. It only has to be, you have to compare it to something. There has to be some relative comparison. And right now, stocks in comparison to bonds look very attractive. So, hey, let's keep talking about bonds. Uh, The next question comes to us from Guy over there. (laughs) If I understand the general suggestions around preparing for a goal like retirement or college, the idea is that the closer you get to needing the money, the more you should be moving it from stocks to bonds and cash. However, An article in the New York Times has scared the bejesus out of me. The article, titled The Big Dangerous Bubble in Corporate Debt by William Cohen, makes it sound like there are a lot of mutual funds that have riskier corporate debt than one might assume. So, if I wanted to liquidate some of my shares out of these bonds funds to pay for college in a couple years, I run the risk that the bond prices, and thus my mutual fund values, might be depressed just as I need to sell. What's your take on this? Do we all have a lot more risk in our bond funds than we might think? Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So I'll just piggyback on what Buck said, and that clearly there is more risk in the bond market these days when you have rising interest rates. Um, and we've seen that this year so far. So, for example, the um, aggregate bond index is on track. This index started in 1976. It's on track to having its second worst year ever. And what does that mean? It's down 2.5%. Hmm. So it's not a huge decline, but if you are saving for retirement or if your retirement's coming up or you have college coming up, you don't want to see your so called safe money go down any kind of value. Um, he also raises a point um, in that there are some questions about the makeup of some bond funds now and that they are getting riskier. So for example, uh, one stat that I read in a, a Business Insider article was that when you look at investment-grade bonds, those are rated BBB and above. And that's what most bond funds are. They're investment-grade. But if you look at um, the aggregate bond index, 50% of those bonds are rated BBB, so basically right above junk, as opposed to just 38% right before the Great Recession. So there is something to be said that the average bond fund is riskier these days just because it ends up holding more bonds with lower ratings. So I think that's a valid point. The bottom line for me is, again, to what Buck said, these days bonds are very unattractive. If you need to keep money out of the stock market, especially if you want to keep it very safe, I think cash is really the best way to go. And the good thing about that nowadays, as we've said before in previous episodes, is, is that when the Fed hikes interest rates, you can almost see it immediately in a good savings account or in CD rates. You have to look because a lot of banks and brokerages 
are still paying virtually nothing, counting on everyone being lazy and not going out there and look for better rates. But if you go out, you will find you'll be able to earn more than 2 almost 3% on your cash. And I think that's more attractive for money that you absolutely need to keep safe than a bond fund these days. You know, you got to consider the risks and rewards. And I think right now, you're not being paid a whole lot of reward for taking on that risk. And so, I would be in cash, too. I own no bonds. But even with college stuff and things, if you've saved $100,000, like the upside is maybe you eke out an extra percent <laughs> or so. That's, I mean, that's a grand. That's not going to make the difference on whether they go to college or not. So, I wouldn't take the risk with money that I knew I needed in the next two or three years. I'm not saying you shouldn't own bonds, by the way. If yep. you have a long-term portfolio, you don't want to have all of your money in stocks, I think a diversified bond fund can still make sense, just as long as you know the risks. I think over a span of five to ten years, studies have shown that actually rates going up over the intermediate to longer term is actually good for a bond fund, because the new bonds that they buy have having interest rates. So, I think you could still earn more than cash over the long term. But stick with cash if you want something that's absolutely safe. Next question comes from Harpreet. I have a question about how stock prices of U.S. tech companies, especially the FANG stocks, might get impacted in the scenario of the U.S. dollar weakening and losing its reserve currency status. Do you think this is possible? Uh, the short answer is anything is possible. Um, but I think you're probably worrying a little bit too much. You know, for the for those of you out there for reserve currency kind of questions, the U.S. is the world's reserve currency, which means other governments keep a lot of our money, right? Um, you may have some insights that I don't. We have people in Washington here, people that work uh, maybe in the Federal Reserve or something. I I just don't see that changing. So that's not anything that I ever lose sleep at overnight. I you know we're a bottoms up kind of investment shop here for how we look at investment companies and stocks to invest in. Um, I put almost no thought into what's going to happen to Netflix or Facebook if you know the U.S. dollar is not the world's reserve currency. So I'm not worried about it. I don't even think about it that much, and I don't think it's going to have that much bearing on any of those companies. So if you like the companies and they're doing well, hold them. Don't worry so much about the reserve currency. Next question comes from oh, it's another Allison, but this one has two L's uh, in Florida. How much should I have in international stocks? I think the frequently accepted recommendation is about 30 to 40% of a portfolio or even up to 50%. But this week there was a long and heated thread on the Bogle they're always heated on the Bogleheads <laughs> forum, aren't they? Challenging this. The title of the thread was It's not enough to mumble, stay the course. International investing has been a disaster. Would you be able to comment on this? Uh, so first of all, let's start since this was uh, playing off the Bogleheads Forum, what Jack Bogle says, and he, I just recently heard an interview. The Bogleheads um, conference was recent, uh, happened recently, and he made some comments about international investing. So he's one of those people who says it's not really necessary. When you look at the long-term returns of U.S. versus internationals, there's no evidence that international outperforms U.S. over the long term. Plus, U.S. is a more Stable country, we have a pretty good, a highly regulated securities market, so you don't have to worry quite so much about fraud. Um, plus, around 40% of the revenues from companies in the S&P 500 come from overseas ventures, so you're still getting some international diversification there. So, if you're going with Jack Bogle, it's hard to argue too much with Jack Bogle. Just stick with U.S. stocks. That said, when he was running Vanguard and he has since retired, they had international funds. 
and they still have international funds. And one of the reasons are there are time periods when international stocks outperform U.S. Happened in the 80s, happened in a good part of the 70s, happened in the first decade of the 2000s. And Jason Zweig in the Wall Street Journal wrote an article saying, like, it's pretty tough now from a valuation standpoint to ignore international stocks. They're about half the valuation of U.S. stocks. Of course, we've been saying this for years, and international stocks still, other than in 2017, have underperformed U.S. stocks over the last five years or so. Um, so I would say you have to be comfortable with the volatility of international stocks. I have about 20 25% of my 401k in international stocks, but you don't have to have it. One thing I will say, though, is that one of the, the 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 way that was phrased on the Bogleheads is that international investing has been a disaster. It's not really been a disaster. Over the long term, international stocks have underperformed U.S. stocks a little bit, but it really depends on what time period you're looking at. Yeah, and and I would add also those if you're buying individual stocks, there's can be some extra trading costs. Uh, for some of your brokerages when you buy international companies. I work mostly on our Canadian operations, though I have ideas through all our services. Um, you know, I'd say, and that's an easy market because it's pretty familiar with us and it's right across the border. There's other ones where there's unique things in accounting and stuff that are a little bit uh, different and more difficult to comprehend. So I would say, like, I don't think you need to. But if you have an interest and you want to find great companies, why would you not look everywhere for those? Um, but you don't have to. You can do very well. Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett have very little of their capital. They're trying to buy more international companies, and he's been trying for years. He's done pretty well with just kind of mostly sticking to the U.S. market. Hey, speaking of Berkshire Hathaway and Buffett, our next question comes from Evandro, who's in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Wow. What will happen to Berkshire Hathaway stock the day Buffett announces his retirement? He's 88, so it's possible it could happen soon. I have no issues with him continuing to lead the company, but for natural reasons, we tend to think about his eventual retirement. It would be great to hear what you think. Yeah, it's a great question. I was at the Berkshire meeting this May, and you know, it's just amazing when you see you mentioned uh, Warren Buffett up there at 88 and taking questions for six hours from. You know, forty thousand people or fifty thousand, whatever was there, and you know Charlie Munger, his sidekick and vice chairman, is ninety four. Wow, um, and still mentally sharp, a, right? Uh, like amazingly, they're just like, yeah. amazingly sharp, and still eats about a box or two of peanut brittle and drinks cherry <laughs> coke the whole time. So, <laughs> so much for your doctor's orders of eating healthy and uh, longevity. But right. um, the great thing about Berkshire, and I've owned it for a long time. This question, uh, I remember reading this on our discussion boards in the nineteen nineties the late 90s, you know, Buffett's 70 some years old, you know, now yeah, we're getting it, you know, 20 too. years in the past. So, uh, here, here's what I would say. Uh, I would be surprised if uh, Berkshire stock went up when Warren Buffett stepped down, um, right? So, it's, it's probably going to go down. But then again, this is his baby. He's built this thing. Um, there are some things that are very unique about Berkshire Hathaway. First of all, they have a wonderful bench strength of managers, and they have a decentralized organizational structure. So, although they own 80 plus businesses, they're all run by their own entrepreneurs and great people. And Buffett has no real insight into those businesses. He understands what's going on. He gets the numbers, but 
they run those day to day. He does not. All he really does is capital allocation and and uh, and management. So uh, the capital allocation stuff, he's hired a couple of really good folks to do that. Uh, Todd Combs and Ted Weschler are helping out on that, and he's got some great people in the insurance operations with Ajit Jain and Greg Abel will take over some of the other operations for their manager of oversight and the management duties of Berkshire. So he has great people there, and my guess is if you're anticipating that the stock's going to get crushed. That's probably not going to happen. They have lots of capital, and I'm sure that the people who are taking over the reins from Warren will have free reign to buy back stock at will if it reaches a certain price. So, um, if you're expecting that, I'm waiting for that day. Uh, it's probably not going to come, and the day will come when he'll step aside. But the, the price probably won't be on sale as much as you think. So I wouldn't worry so much about that. I've also owned it for several years. Probably not. I'm sure not as long as you. But I've, I don't. I, like you, I don't have the same concerns. I mean. Buffett has shown an ability to invest in good businesses, and he has also shown an ability to invest in good people. And those people will still be there after he retires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they have a hundred billion in cash. It's it's hard. There's not many companies on the on the earth that have the balance sheet strength that Berkshire Hathaway has right now. And we know that they are willing to allocate it very quickly. I think he bought almost you know over forty billion of Apple. In the last few, you know, year or so, so he'll put it to work when he finds ideas. Another example of how you could possibly own more Apple than you think you do. <laughs> yes, through Berkshire, that's right. Yeah. Next question comes from uh, Moral or Morel. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. So those, I'll pronounce it many ways. My wife and I are 26 and 28 respectively. I just started a new job with what I feel is great pay, and I'm trying to start good savings and investing habits, but I'm getting aggravated because there are too many goals to hit. All right, ready? Ready. First goal. Need three to six months worth of income in savings for emergency funds. So a goal of eighteen thousand. We currently have ten thousand saved. Need ten thousand for down payment on a car. Forty five hundred for a forty five thousand dollar car. Need twenty percent down payment for a house to avoid PMI. Forty thousand for a two hundred thousand dollar home. Continue saving to prepare for baby expenses. It seems that all my savings energy is going to amassing a minimum of 52,500 savings account just to meet the basics. How in the world will we ever be able to invest? My wife and I both contribute minimum to match amounts to our 401ks, but we are nowhere near maxing out those accounts, much less a Roth IRA or brokerage account. I feel we are decent stewards of our money, but it just seems like an impossible task to hit savings goals while investing at the same time. Any help would be amazing. Oh, I know. That's such sympathy. I so much stress. <laughs> Uh, no, you you're st- doing great. You're doing, yeah. I mean, you're, you, I'm sure you're doing great. First of all, you care about this, and you're in your mid twenties, which is a right? great sign. And it's certainly difficult to hit all these targets when you're just starting out and you're thinking of starting a family. So here are my initial thoughts. So uh, you said three to six months worth of income and a savings for emergency fund. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, it's I don't think it's three to six months of income. It's about three months of must pay expenses. You don't have a mortgage at this point. You don't have kids at this point. I think you can get by with a smaller emergency fund. You've already saved up $10,000. That's probably okay, especially if you feel like your job's pretty safe. You need $10,000 for uh, to buy uh, put a down payment on a $45,000 car. I would say lower your car needs. I don't know what car you're <laughs> looking at, but you can get a pretty good used car. Almost every car I bought. Oh, we just bought a $16,000 new car, and it's delightful. I don't care if it's a manual transmission. I love manual That's our best theft deterrent, the (laughs) fact that our car is a manual transmission. Not to mention, you can pop the clutch if the battery goes down. Anyway, so I would say lower your, your... 
your sights in terms of what kind of car you need. Yeah, yeah the average new car now, and I just did this quiz with my family last night, is $36,000 mm-hmm. is the average price, and largely because they're not making the little cars anymore very much, and they've all gone to the more profitable SUVs, mm-hmm. so that's driven up the average average cost. But 45000 is probably for a nice SUV. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then 20% down payment to avoid PMI. Um, I understand how difficult that could be, and and uh, you, that you're doing it for a $200,000 home. I'm jealous because we live in the Washington, D.C. area, and you could never find a home for that amount. Um, I would say, especially with your first home, it's okay to put down less than 20%. Uh, we did the FHA loan. Yeah. That was 4%. Yeah. And then just you can get out of PMI once you have built up 20% mm-hmm. equity. So combination of you making your payments and hopefully the, the home price increase Eventually, you can get out of PMI, so you don't have. You generally don't have to pay it forever. Just make sure you know what the terms are before you take on that loan. Also, you totally don't have to buy a house if you don't want to. Well, so that's another big thing, right? <laughs> I mean, we talked about that. Like home ownership is completely overrated. It's the biggest mistake my wife and I made that we've bought too many houses, partially because we bought the so-called starter home and didn't think down the line to how many kids we eventually would have. So. If you're at a point where you're, you just started this job, you're not sure whether you're going to like it or not, you don't know how many kids you're going to have, you might want to wait on buying the house. Yeah, yeah. And um, we see some house prices moderating. There's not a whole lot of inventory right now on, in most markets. And um, as more inventory comes on, it usually benefits the buyer, uh, too. So patience sometimes. And I, I would just say, I would echo what Bro said. I mean, you're in your mid-20s. You're doing phenomenally well. Just prioritize things. I, I would add one that Bro won't like, and we sit on the retirement committee here. Um, but I remember we did it for our first house. We we borrowed off our, our 401k um, to make our down payment for our first house. That's not your first option, but you guys are contributing to 401ks, so that is an option. And make sure that when you do buy that house, that you want to be in that area for seven years at least, because um, it's not something that you want to buy and sell houses, as we know. There's commissions that go along with those, usually around 6%. So it's expensive. Uh, it's much more expensive to buy and sell houses than it is stocks or anything else. So make sure that when you do buy, you kind of make that uh, make that commitment. Um, the other thing you I like say, the schools and that. Right, yes. Do That's the, a big deal in our do the area. Commute. Yeah, go visit that house and do the early morning commute and do the commute back at nighttime as well. And one thing for those of you, since we got on houses, but it's not a house. Oh, show. I'm all houses all Oh, you're the time. all houses. We're, clo- yeah, we're closing right. this Friday. Allison is closing. But look for comparable rentals to your house. And generally, you want to pay around uh, 200 times a comparable monthly rent. It'll fluctuate, you know, but around there is pretty good. In the peak kind of bubble times of 2005, 2006, 2007, around here, um, people were paying up to 400 times monthly rents. And those those people generally saw the value of their house decline by 30 or 40 percent. Then you're underwater, and that's a bad situation to be in. So that's a good little kind of tip when you start to value what you should pay for a house. Yeah. Okay. And since this episode comes out right before Halloween, mm-hmm. if you're going to have kids, Great time to drive around and see which neighborhood has the most kids walking around, who's decorating the most for Halloween to get yeah. that vibe. That's true. Uh, and the final thing I'll say is if you can manage to save more money, I w- the first place I put it is the Roth IRA because that money grows tax free. But as we've pointed out previously, the money you put into a Roth IRA, you can take out tax and penalty free if you need it. And I wrote an article back when my kids were very young about us using our Roth IRA as an emergency fund. We put it in there. Hopefully, we don't need to touch it. But if we did need to get it, we could. We didn't need to. But we did look at that as our emergency fund. 
Yeah. And it worked out pretty well. Ah, yeah. so they could put that 10000 that they currently have saved, shuffle it over to the Roth then. Yeah, the right. contributions. The contributions yeah. you can take out tax-free. Right, yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah, not, not the earnings. Gains, right, right, right. And the limit per person is 5500 for folks their age. Although, hopefully, it's going to go up in 2019. All right. Yeah. Bottom line is, you're doing great. You're doing Keep great. Keep it up. Yeah. And you are investing. Yeah. You're just investing in a lot of stuff. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right, next question comes from uh, Dr. Y.L. My biggest holding is Netflix, which became 40 to 50% in my main portfolio. This is a taxable account. The recent pullback in the stock's price hurt this account substantially. Since I started investing, I've made nearly 200 buy orders and fewer than 10 sell orders. Overall, I'm very happy with the full approach of buying, holding, and not selling, but maybe it's time to stream some Netflix into other stocks. Get it? Stream, stream. Wow, yeah, yeah I like that. like that. Uh, so, first of all, congratulations. We yes. love Yeah, that's a nice problem to have. <laughs> yeah, we generally tell people buy in thirds, which means whatever your full position is, you kind of take one bite and one third of that and then two more purchases. So, you give yourself some time not getting it perfect. He did it in two hundredths, right? So, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. And he added to a great stock and he's made a lot of money. So, first of all, congratulations for that. Um, I, I would say, you know, this, we call it the sleep well at night test. I mean, here, here's the thing. Uh, I think Netflix is doing very well. I'm, um, I'm not the expert analyst on covering it, but I think most of their kind of potentials in the rest of the world now because they've gotten so much penetration here in the U.S. So if they can, and they, they've shown great progress in being an attractive offering around the world. So that's great for Netflix. But anyhow, stocks are volatile from time to time. And if uh, you know a twenty or thirty percent uh, pullback in Netflix impacts your life, and it sounds like you know the recent pullback was less than that, and maybe kind of shook you a little bit, it's fine to sell some of that. Um, you know, I think it's in a taxable account, so you're going to have to pay some taxes. But there's worse things to do than pay taxes. Every once in a while, we got to do that. I would say a ten percent range. I start to get a little bit un- uncomfortable, maybe, but that's a personal thing. Forty and fifty percent. I mean. If you have a twenty percent drop in that, that hits your portfolio at ten percent. Uh, that's a pretty big hit. So yeah. I think you're you're wise to be thinking maybe this is a little bit uncomfortable, and you can take some out. Another great way to do this without paying taxes, if you're currently saving and adding money to your savings, is to rebalance with new money by buying other things. Yeah. That way you don't have to sell your Netflix. You can just buy some of the other positions that you like, and that percentage of your portfolio will naturally go down. Unless of course the stock does wonderfully well. But so those are two options. You can do both of them. Add don't don't add any money to Netflix. Um, you can kind of just add money to other things, and then if you feel like it, you can kind of sell it down a little bit. Yeah. So the stock is down twenty percent since June. There have been times in Netflix's history where it's been down more than seventy percent. Quick, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's definitely a concern I would have. Um, tax consequences are uh, are unfortunate or fortunate. I mean, it's always better to pay capital gains yeah. taxes than to take capital losses. Um, but if you have made multiple purchases over your history of holding it, you can determine which shares you're selling and choose the cost basis that is best for your situation. To be quite honest, given that tax rates are pretty low, not knowing your particular situation, it might be a good time actually to take the big gain now if you expect to be in a higher tax bracket in the future or if you expect tax rates to go up in the future to find some way to pay for Social Security and Medicare and all that stuff. So. I'm not saying that you actually should necessarily choose the highest basis shares. You might want to choose the lowest basis shares and bite that bullet today. 
depends on your tax situation, but basically you do have a little bit of control over that. Right. And and to the extent if you do sell some of that, you can look through your portfolio for some offsetting losses right. to cancel out some of those gains and balance them out. I don't know if you have that or not, but that's always a good thing to do at the end of every year anyhow some tax loss selling. You can buy them back in 30, 30 plus 30 days and yeah. do that if you want, but anyhow that's something else to kind of consider. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Save time and money by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desk or phone. Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business, and now it's available to you. This isn't one-size-fits-all software. With industry-specific support for a broad range of business, NetSuite works the way your business works. Motley Fool podcast listeners can get a free guide from NetSuite titled Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth. You'll learn how to acquire new customers, increase profits, and finally get real visibility into your cash flow. You can get this free guide at netsuite.com slash fool. That's it for those questions. Wow. Now it's good. time to move on to my favorite part of the mailbag episode. The moving part where... tips? <laughs> no, I didn't get I haven't gotten any I've gotten one moving tip so oh. far. That was it. So I'm still I got one. Don't do it yourself. Yeah, that is a good one. That is a very good one. We are, we are listening to that one. Um one person so far has sent one in, but I'm hoping more people will send in their moving. Buying and selling a house advice, because uh, only one person has sent one in. And so I'll share it later. And I've got some more advice from around the fold. That's coming later. No, my favorite part is where you guys send us postcards and talk about us. So, first off, uh, Buck, you're going to be a little bit in the dark here, but uh, we're going to talk about how divisive our financial independence retire early episode was. Oh, uh, yeah. No. So, uh, on Twitter, Hareth was intrigued and felt inspired by the episode. And Dylan here at The Fool, he gave us extra gold for it. He said he it was a great episode. However, a couple people, or maybe more than a couple, uh, had some concerns. So Raj writes, I've always found these type of self-help stories are misleading. Typical these folks publicize that they achieve their freedom beforehand and now simply run the website to share knowledge out of goodness of their own heart. But it's misleading. More often than not, the fact is these folks can quit their jobs because of their online businesses. Nothing wrong with that. Just hard to take any of their stories credibly. Their advice generally makes sense. I would love it if you guys have guests on the show who are true FIs who have achieved their FI the foolish way, financial independence, and now pursue their passions, travel, community service, arts, hobbies, education, going back to school, volunteering, etc., without running online businesses. would be really interesting to hear their stories on how they achieved financial independence and how they handled their finances during pseudo-retirement. Um, Sam also wrote in and found some suggestions made by the guests about financial independence and self-reliance were more about getting public support and had concerns about that, relying on public support, such as getting subsidies for health care and sending your kid to, to community college for the first few years. You know, Is that going to stunt their academic progress? So. I don't know if you have any thoughts. Yeah, so when these guys were able to leave jobs that they didn't like to do a life that they enjoy more with a more flexibility because they found some way to save 50 to 70% of their income. And to me, that is the key lesson. At a time when the national savings rate is 6%, to look at people and be like, you know what, I want to change my circumstances and I'm going to do it by saving a lot of money, ignoring the consumer culture, Mm -hmm. and creating a life that I like more, that's really, to me, the big story 
of these folks who want to retire in their 30s and 40s by doing the, the FIRE thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think for our um, more seasoned listeners and investors who've been with The Motley Fool for a long time, I think they already are frugal. And I think they're already like, yeah, 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 I've already been there. I've done that. Now, what I need to know is how can I really make more money by investing? And how can I really be financially independent and not make any money, like stop making money, period, and just live off of what I've made? Um, but I think for the younger listeners, probably on the show, that it's that consu- the idea of, oh, I can reject consumer culture. Right. That's probably quite eye-opening. Yep. So yep. I think it probably says more about maybe the stage of life that our listeners in when, and how they reacted to the to the episode. Right. Yeah, I would add for running those businesses, this is what they love. Like they enjoy doing it. And here's the here's the real secret. This is not about journaling, but when you write about it and you teach other people, you learn a lot more about the subject mm-hmm. yourself and you mm-hmm. get comments from other people. So I'd say retirement means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. And I'd hope if you're in your thirties and forties, like it may mean you're working and you love working, but it's just doing something that you really like. You, really like, you know, yeah, yeah. and you're probably going to get a lot better at it then than than doing other things. Certainly than watching TV or whatever else. Right. Yeah. Uh, for the record, we always appreciate your guys' feedback on episodes, um, and when you dis- disagree with us, um, that's really great and helpful to hear. I can't do anything about my voice, but it's still helpful to hear from you. Norkin, Norkin, bro. Sorry, I can't either. <laughs> yeah, that's it. This is what this is what we got. Now you got a nice voice. Uh, all right, I also want to say congrats to listener Jason who got engaged and sent in a photo. He sent it in along with a question. We didn't get to your question, but I felt like we should say congrats on yes. getting engaged. Um, Rick is going to be bummed that he's sick today because I'm mentioning and I left it back at my desk. But uh, our postcards. So we got one. You have to imagine it. It's three parts of an alligator. Um, turned into three different postcards. Uh, it came from Clay in St. Augustine. He addressed the head to bro, the gut to me, and the tail to Rick, which I think seems oh. exactly right. Um, Rich is like the our heart. own. How about the heart to you? Yeah. You're heart. the heart of the Thanks. show. Thanks. The, right. the heart and the gut. Uh, Rich is like our own Uncle Matt from Fraggle Rock. He's so prolific with sending in the postcards. He sent us three <laughs> postcards that his parents brought when they visited him in New Mexico. So all three are from his hometown in Ohio. So we have one of a a Leffel turbine, another of the courthouse, and a third of uh, an old Methodist mission church. Nice. Uh, and Tomoko, do you remember her? She came and visited the Fool and shared her story. She lives in Old Town. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you remember her. She sent a card from, oh, I'm going to say this wrong, Iqaluit, which is way up north in Canada. She says it's amazingly beautiful, but cold. How cold, you ask? How cold? In <laughs> average, on in October, on average, the high... Is negative one degree Fahrenheit. Oh, my <laughs> so, God. Wow. I don't know what Tomoko is doing up there, <laughs> uh, but I appreciate her sending a postcard from a far flung <laughs> part of the world. Uh, so, yeah, so I think that's it. Buck, thank you for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, it's Allison a joy. and Robert. It was fun. We try to have fun. Yeah. Um, uh, the show has, like I said, has been taped by Austin. It's still probably going to get edited nauseatingly by Rick Engdahl. <laughs> Our email is answers.fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. <laughs>